1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Welcome to Chatter. I'm Katherine Pompilio, Associate Editor at Lawfare, and the first of several guest hosts from Lawfare joining Shane Harris and David Preece in bringing you Chatter episodes. This week... Lawfare Editor-in-Chief Benjamin Wittes on his so-called special military operations against the Russians.
0: It was a few days after the election. I drove by the embassy just because it's in my neighborhood. And, you know, I noticed for the first time that it was a giant white-faced building that looked like a movie screen. I want people to be thinking about the people who are being injured, killed, displaced, and I want them to be thinking about the people whose voices they're not hearing. You always have to ask, wait a minute, how much of this is ego and how much of this is actually being helpful? And there's a, there's a complicated mix there. Hi Ben, what is welcome to Chatter? Thank you. It's
1: wonderful to be here. We're in studio, which is... Uh,
0: yeah, we are in the old jungle studio, which all it needs now, it's been refurbished, and all it needs now is plants.
1: Was, it, was So do plants make the jungle studio the jungle?
0: That is why it was called the jungle studio, because it was lush with plants and scotch, um, scotch,
1: yeah, I've heard about um,
0: that. And, <laughs> but now the the plants all died during the pandemic, so uh, it was the deforested jungle studio for a while, and now it is ready for an ecological reboot. And no Scotch
1: too. Is that coming back? Or oh, yes. Okay, <laughs> great. Um, well, so again, welcome to Chatter. Uh, I was talking in preparation for this. I noticed that you've never been on a Chatter episode. Correct. Um, and Chatter is a product that you helped launch. Um, how does it? I'm going to get meta here, but how does it feel being on Chatter? You were the subject of Chatter now.
0: Yeah. So that's an interesting question. So Chatter uh, is is one of the Lawfare products that I approved and kind of in a very distant sense supervised, but have never directly been involved in. It started. Uh, I want to say a year or two ago when David Priest and Shane Harris approached me with the idea for it. And I liked the idea very much, but I already had my hands full with the Lawfare podcast and with, you know, all the other things we do. And so I told them, by all means, do it. And uh, but it's you know, not something I'm going to be directly involved in, which delighted them because I don't think they actually <laughs> wanted my prying hands uh, in their in their podcast. Uh, so I have listened to Chatter regularly with great uh, pleasure and I have uh, approved of Chatter and enjoyed Chatter and I have also very much enjoyed the fact that Chatter is – not my podcast, it is (laughs) one of Lawfare's children uh, that is not something that I'm directly editorially involved in. So yeah, this is my first chatter.
1: Well, this is also my first chatter, so I'm glad that we get to go through this together.
0: Exactly. By the end of it, we'll be we'll be bonded by blood.
1: Yeah. And David and Shane, watch out. That's all <laughs> I have to say. Um, so we're here to talk about your special military operations, which we will get into. But I just kind of wanted to touch on uh, things like, also for listeners who don't know, I'm Catherine. I'm an associate editor at Lawfare. Ben is my boss. Um, and... Things like your special military operation and in lieu of fun um, and other projects like that are explicitly not lawfare products, unlike Chatter and other things. Um, But a lot of attention comes to them from lawfare, and I feel like vice versa. Uh, Where do you draw the line between your day job and other projects?
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting question, and it's one I spend a lot of time navigating, actually, because in my own life, I don't really draw much of a line between the professional and the personal. Um, Not that I'm constantly working or anything, but the lines that, you know, what I consider recreational, a lot of other people might consider work. And so during the pandemic, for example, I decided that one thing I decided this very early in the pandemic that one thing I needed in order to keep myself sane was to have a social hour with people every day. Mm -hmm. And the only way I could think of doing that that would actually force me to really do it was to say to a friend who turned out to be Kate Klonick, hey, do you want to do a show with me every day? And we'll have a live audience and we will have a friend on and we'll have a, a drink and we'll shoot the shit. And that became In Lieu of Fun. And it was named In Lieu of Fun by some wag who uh, <laughs> you know, thought, thought it was a good name, which I agreed with. Um, and so... You know, a lot of people might say, whoa, doing a daily live show, that's thats work. Mm-hmm. But for me, that was just kind of something to force myself to not be lonely, to be, uh, you know, to reach out to friends who I might otherwise not have occasion to reach out to, mm-hmm. to build a community of people who were, you know, wanted to similarly have a drink with what one of them called... My imaginary friends uh, every day. <laughs> and so I didn't really think of it as work. Uh, the reason we didn't do it under the banner of lawfare was number one, that it was going to treat issues far beyond the scope of lawfare. It was going to, you know, if we had an interesting person on to talk about crows, which we did. Um, <laughs> no, we had we had multiple people on to talk about Corvids and uh, and their intelligence and stuff. And that's really just beyond the scope of Lawfare. And we sort of <laughs> wanted the flexibility to do it. They're some of the best episodes that we've done, we did. Also, you know, we had a Wall Street Journal reporter on to talk about content moderation, which would have been, mm-hmm. um, you know, very lawfare except that he was sitting in front of a live beehive uh, at the time and all – we wanted to he turned out to be a, a a very serious beekeeper, and he had incredible like live video of going into this beehive that we did. <laughs> so all we did was ended up talking to him about bees amazing. Um, and so you know, there was just for in lieu of fun, it was just a little bit beyond the scope of or a lot beyond the scope of what lawfare does. and I try to be. I try to be careful about keeping lawfare's brand p- pretty pure. As you know from our editorial meetings, I'm, I'm the sort of cop of keeping – not letting lawfare treat issues that are not within its jurisdiction and I try to observe that in my own life too. So a lot of episodes of In Lieu of Fun would be good lawfare content – But a lot of them wouldn't and if you know that a lot of it is going to be beyond the scope of lawfare, probably better to do it outside of lawfare's orbit. Mm -hmm. Um, The special military operations and for those who don't know what that term refers to, that is my joking reference to uh, the the protests that I've been doing for the last year – that have involved shining various types of lights on the Russian embassy compound here in Washington and elsewhere. Uh, I have not done under the auspices of Lawfare because though thematically within Lawfare's orbit, uh, it's frankly a form of activism and I don't think Lawfare should ever be involved in activism of any kind, even mine, even the kinds that I am most sympathetic to. and so. I, I don't see a conflict, but I do think it's important that they be on the side. I don't want Lawfare to have an institutional position on shining lights on embassy compounds. I'm, I'm not sure what that would be, but I don't think that's a healthy thing for Lawfare to be doing. I do think it's a healthy thing for me to be doing. And so I've just kind of done that on my own. And then the, the related matters that I do on my own that sort of interact with Lawfare but are not of Lawfare are my Twitter feed which of course is now defunct <laughs> uh, thanks to uh, Twitter's bizarre new content moderation policies and uh, my substack which is the sort of inheritor of my Lawfare uh, – of my of my Twitter feed. It's kind of the – incidental writing and thought that is sometimes lawfare relevant but is often just as uh, you know today's was a video of uh, a, a call to defect that we projected onto the Russian embassy and or sometimes you know every day I try to highlight a particular animal that did something fun and that's the beast of the day and that's always going to be, you know, that that just doesn't have much to do with lawfare except when it's a truly extraordinary beast. Exactly. (laughs)
1: Um, So you've touched on this a little bit in this conversation, but for those who are unfamiliar, they're hearing lights, projection, embassy, defect. Uh, Could you walk us, paint us a picture of what the special military operation is. What's a typical one of those?
0: Yeah, so none of them is typical. Um, Some of them involve lights. Uh, Most of them involve lights, but some of them don't. One of the most successful one was during the daytime and it involved planting sunflowers. Uh, What they all involve is, I'm going to use this word uh, very deliberately, the harassment of Russian diplomats and the goal of them is one way or another to, with good fun and humor, make life less pleasant to be a Russian diplomat in a Western democratic country. Most of these have taken place in Washington, but we did one in Ottawa we did one in Paris. I don't advise trying that. We came very close to getting arrested in Paris and we will be doing a swing through the Nordic countries sometime over the summer. Um, so the basic concept is that the United States has an obligation under the Vienna Convention to protect the embassy. and every country that hosts an embassy has a has such an obligation and i respect that and i don't want to interfere with that i don't want to create an environment in which diplomacy is harder to do i do want to register in the strongest of terms the fact that civilized countries don't host genocidal governments without comment and that there are a lot of people who have to live in that neighborhood, and I'm one of them. I I live a mile and a half from the Russian embassy, and I drive by it all the time, and I walk by it all the time. And for a lot of people who live in that neighborhood, there's some experience uh, of—of disruption and upset that you get every time you have to pass it and you see the comfortable environment in which we are hosting people who are actively speaking on behalf of and representing uh, the killing and displacement and kidnapping of large numbers of people and rape. And so I the goal is to invade that space without actually violating any laws or, or doing anything that is inconsistent with the United States' obligations to protect that embassy and let it function. You can't do that with noise, particularly not at night, because there are other neighbors involved and because there's a D.C. noise ordinance you can't do it with projectiles. If you throw things over the walls, you will get arrested. And by the way, you should. <laughs> um, you can't do it with uh, uh, signs because signs stay on the other side of the em- of the wall. And so the question that led to the special military operation was how do you do it um, – How do you get into that space as literally as possible without actually violating any of the rules? And the solution to that problem was light. Hmm. Um, So the classic special military operation is you take a spotlight or more recently a laser projector and you shine it on the wall of the embassy which is uh, approximately 300 feet away, and you do it with a message that is as offensive as humanly possible to the people inside the embassy. Think of a Ukrainian flag. Mm -hmm. Think of a map of Ukraine with uh, Crimea and the eastern parts of the country integrated into the map. Think of slogans, and you try to force— the Embassy staff to react somehow, and they react in a number of different ways, uh, as I'm sure we'll discuss. And those reactions you film, mm-hmm. and those that filming becomes the uh, excitement of the of the episode.
1: So in addition to flags and uh, maps, what else have you projected? And what messages are you sending to diplomats?
0: Yeah, so we've done a few different projects. And again, these have been at different locations. So in the main embassy compound, uh, you have a limited – because the distance is so long, you have to keep images very, very simple. So we've done the flag, the map, uh, the Ukrainian trident, uh, which is called the Trizub. Uh Uh, many, many, many different slogans. So the laser lets us write on the walls, Mm -hmm. which is super fun. Um, So sometimes we team up with a group of Ukrainian activists and they chant slogans. And when they chant them, we display the symbol, the the slogans that they're chanting. Um, uh, Elsewhere, um, oh, we've also done uh, images of sunflowers, uh, images that have been drawn for us by the NAFO fellows, the the group of uh, graphic artist activists who work on Twitter. Um, and then on the backside of the embassy where you can get much closer and in other locations, we've done much more elaborate slideshows uh, showing war crimes, for example. We've done... Uh, We did a display um, of work by a Kharkiv-based artist uh, who had done some uh, uh, sort of split image work that I thought was really amazing. So we we did a whole slideshow of his work on the Russian Cultural Center. We tried to show a movie once. Uh, That didn't work too well. Um, uh, And... We've done. I'm trying to think what what else. Um, oh, and we did the we did a display by a projection artist um, uh, uh, in Odessa, who uh, whose work we featured once. So we've tried to do a, a variety of things. Oh, and uh, most <laughs> ambitiously of all, sorry, I forgot the most <laughs> interesting one. Uh, we did the – this this uh, woman who had survived uh, Bucha wrote an essay for us to project and we projected it line by line with the uh, – on the embassy with a live voice uh, voicing it, um, which we created a, I think a very powerful video out of – that was back on February 24th. So – uh, and then, more recently, we did a a, a poem where we did the sort of the same the same basic idea, which is somebody, you know, reading it aloud while we're projecting it. Uh, and the poem, uh, which actually we just uh, posted the video of today, uh, that um, included a call for embassy officials to defect. So that's. You know, again, designed to be deliberately obnoxious and provocative.
1: Um, I remember you did a live from Ukraine episode with the woman, the woman who survived the Bucha attack. Yes. What was, or so what was her essay about?
0: So her essay was uh, so so. Katya had written a diary of uh, her nine days under occupation in Bucha, and I had read it. Uh, she'd had it translated and edited and posted on Medium. And I thought it was really moving and well done and complicated and interesting. So I asked her to do an episode of Live from Ukraine with me. That was literally the the only time we've ever spoken. Mm -hmm. Um, But we've corresponded a fair bit. And she, I asked her to write an essay that she would want projected onto the embassy. And she um, she did it. It is, I would say, a letter from her to the people in the building. And about, it's at one level the story of how she's a, a twice refugee. She was a refugee from... Eastern Donbass where she's originally from where she had to flee in 2014 and then in a kind of fleeing Hiroshima for Nagasaki kind of way she settled in Bucha mm-hmm. where <laughs> you know she like yeah you you don't I, I guess you don't get to choose where the next place to be invaded is <laughs> um and so it's kind of about that sequence but it's also about the Psychology of how she sees the people in the building, how um how she sees Ukraine. Um, and I found it very moving. And so I had my friend Luda uh, read it. we i it was written in Ukrainian, and we translated it. And then I had Luda read it in both English and Ukrainian, and we created. Uh, And we projected it in both languages. And then we we had, um, I had, it it took a lot of editing to get it in in a video form that worked, but it was done in front of a live audience. And, you know, the goal of these things is both to do for a live audience, but also to create a lasting record that goes well beyond the group of people who could be there.
1: Mm. I, I am not Russian, and I'm obviously not a diplomat, and a lot of these these are horrifying images that you're putting up, um, in addition, just kind of exposing everything that's going on. Um, have you heard anything from, or have you interacted with any embassy staff?
0: Sure. Um... So at a basic level, the embassy staff uh, responds to most of these events. They put up their own spotlights by way of interfering with what we're doing. And so there's the distant um, <laughs> interaction of competing spotlights, which sometimes gets pretty comical Um Cat and mouse games. Cat and mouse games Mm -hmm. where their spotlights are chasing ours around the face of the building. Um, There are, however, more direct interactions too. So the last time we ended up with a a pretty extended negotiation with them about – would, when when who should take down what spotlights? And the Secret Service, which guards the embassy actually <laughs> mediated that mm-hmm. negotiation. Um, the but sometimes they are more direct than that. So um, one time, for example, I was working with uh, a, a friend of mine and she's Ukrainian American. And speaks Russian uh, well. I speak Russian terribly um, <laughs> and don't usually try. But she was yelling at them in Russian and they came out and started filming her, I think, because they assumed she was Russian. Oh. Um, and so they they do, you know, come out and try to be intimidating sometimes. And then uh, once we were uh, – I had a, 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 a group of – very beautiful children lay a, a bunch of sunflowers, uh, sunflowers being a Ukrainian nationalist symbol, on the driveway of the embassy. And a, a member of the embassy staff came out and kicked them, um, not the children, the sunflowers. Mm-hmm. So there are those kind of direct interactions uh, the other night um they were having a Victory Day party. Victory. We were out there because it was Victory Day, which is a kind of sacred day in the Russian calendar. And um, some of the people leaving that party got into a shouting match with some of the people we were working with. Um, but I guess the most dramatic example is the, the time that they sent somebody across the street to attack us with umbrellas and mm-hmm. uh, he— you know, came across the street completely unexpectedly and started trying to block the projectors both with his body and with umbrellas and ended up, you know, poking the projectors with the umbrellas pretty aggressively and chest bumping one of the people that I was working with. So, yeah, we get, I would say the goal is always to provoke a response. Mm -hmm. Um, It's it's actually from a theatrics point of view it's kind of boring if you do a protest and they don't respond from a <laughs> from a videography point of view <laughs> it's always the response that's the most interesting thing when we tried to show a movie they suggest they they actively successfully prevented it by just driving a van in front of the projector. And that was the last time we w- used a giant projector because wow. we realized at that point we <laughs> yeah. had to be more mobile yeah. than that. So they, um, you know, we're always trying to provoke a response. Uh, we plant sunflowers. They destroy the sunflowers. It's kind of the the goal of the special military operations is to capture the response. It's not necessarily to plant the sunflowers. Mm -hmm. It's to film them destroying the sunflowers, which is, by the way, one of my white whales. I know they they destroy the sunflowers. Uh I know the sunflowers get destroyed and I know exactly who's doing it. And I've never been able to capture it on film. And I've even installed cameras and had the cameras removed. Unreal. Um, No, no, it's like, talk about cat and mouse. It's like a real spy versus spy thing.
1: know, you know who it is who's doing it?
0: I, to a moral certainty, yes, I know who's doing it. Do I have evidence that I'm right? (laughs) No, but but let's just put it this way: when we capture the images on screen of of, on camera of the person who is doing it, uh, people who have followed special military operations closely will not be surprised at what that person's face looks like.
1: Need to do a stakeout.
0: Oh, believe me, I have. <laughs> oh, no. You went in your car, and you. Waited. I went in my car and stayed all night once, and nobody came. Nobody came, and the next night they were destroyed. On, they saw you. Uh, they called. Totally made me unreal. <laughs> I mean, they are the Russian. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, they're, they're, yeah. They're, they're good at this. shit. Yeah, <laughs> that's what they do.
1: Um, so, what is it like conducting international negotiations via the Secret Service through a fence
2: or through a <laughs> wall?
0: Well, that was the single most surreal experience that – so the the yeah. getting attacked by a Russian thug who comes across Wisconsin Avenue uh, and kind of ends up in an umbrella dance, that was pretty surreal. Mm-hmm. But then he goes acro- back across the street and honestly, if you watch the video of that, we really wore him out um, and he's finally just exhausted – I mean, exhausted to the point that he's sweating profusely. Wow. He was almost crying, and um, he needed water. I think he was probably pretty dehydrated. And did you talk to him? At yeah, all? we 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 did. I mean, he he said only one sentence to us the whole forty five minutes he was out there. But we tried to get him to defect. Actually, we were. And I actually thought we were making some progress with him. I thought he was in an emotionally complicated position, I think. Um, And he finally goes back across the street. And I was – this is going to sound egomaniacal and I really don't mean it that way um, except that maybe I'm an egomaniac. But I had genuinely thought we had – a working understanding between us and the Secret Service and the Russians. Mm -hmm. And the understanding was nobody had ever written it down. There was no agreement. There were no negotiations. But there was a a basic – we'd done this many, many times. And each time there was a – I think a pretty simple unwritten code. Which was we didn't approach the embassy. I always kept my people. Nobody threw anything over the walls. No, there was no spray paint. There was no, you know, we didn't use noise except in a very limited fashion. In you know, uh, within the terms of the DC noise uh, uh, nuisance regulation, the 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 sound rules. and they stayed in the compound. And if they, if there was an issue, they raised it with the Secret Service and the Secret Service raised it with us. And they sh- they tried to prevent us from shining lights. We shined the lights. We played cat and mouse. But we didn't go. We didn't invade their territory. We respected the, the rules of – and they did not come across the street. And that basic understanding kept everybody safe. Honestly, it prevents – anybody on our side from doing anything stupid Mm -hmm. and it prevents anybody on their side from doing anything stupid and dangerous um, like, for example, what President Erdogan did, uh, you know, when his thugs beat a bunch of protesters outside the Turkish embassy and actually outside the Brookings Institution. Um, And so, you know, there was a – and that basic rule held – until that night on May 9th um, – I'm sorry, not May 9th, on uh, a couple of weeks earlier. And all of a sudden – and it's an interesting question why, uh, to which I can speculate but I honestly don't know the answer. They violated it and they actually sent somebody across the street mm-hmm. to interfere, not quite violently. He didn't hit anybody but he didn't keep his hands to himself either. Um, And it required the Secret Service to come across the street and show presence to get him to back off. Um, And so I made a snap judgment at the point at which he went across the street that we couldn't allow that to happen and we needed to push back. And so, again, this may be delusional, but what I decided is our spotlights were not coming down while their spotlights were up that they had they had crossed a line, literally crossed a line. And the <laughs> yeah. line was Wisconsin, Wisconsin Avenue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Um,
0: and it's a big line. It's yeah. a big fat line with cars in it. And you, you cannot cross it by accident, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? And they sent somebody across the street to be disruptive. And in light of that— I was not going to let them take a picture of us taking down our spotlights and send it back to Moscow with a, you know, cable that said the fascist protesters put up spotlights. But we sent, uh, you know, Vladimir across the street and he, you know, bullied them into taking it down. And now the only thing on this on the wall is, mm-hmm. you know, the Russian Z symbol and. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I told them, I, I the Secret Service came over and asked me whether I was going to take it down and I said not until the ZNV spotlights are down. Hmm. And so to my surprise, they offered to communicate that to the Russians uh, <laughs> and the result was like a Vienna Cold War <laughs> <laughs> kind of scene, which again is all on film yep. um, and – Uh, In which the Secret Service goes across to the gates of the embassy, communicates our proposal for a coordinated spotlight turning off sequence to the Russians and they, you know, send it up the chain of command and come back with a counter proposal. Mm -hmm. And again, I thought we – again, it's like the lesson is maybe the Russians don't after all negotiate in good faith. (laughs) But uh, we had a protracted negotiation through the Secret Service and it was weird as hell.
2: <laughs> and,
0: um, and then I thought we had a deal. In reviewing the tape, it was not 100 percent clear that they ever fully agreed to the deal.
1: It was three, two, one, take the lights down, right?
0: That's what I, I thought it was. They had three spotlights up. Uh-huh. We had two. I proposed we'll take down one
2: yeah.
0: as a good faith gesture. You take down two so that we'll both have one up. <laughs> and then on the Secret Service's three, two, one, we'll both kill them at the same time. Wow! And I had thought that the Secret Service uh, said they were OK with that. It turns out maybe what the Secret Service said was they're okay with your taking one of yours down <laughs> but, it's <not> <laughs> but at the end of the day they would not take down the two once I had uh, taken down my one so we put ours back up and we ended up in a standoff with them that lasted until the sun came up and no spotlights can compete with with the sun the so ultimate spotlight exactly yeah. <laughs> it's the ultimate solar spotlight
1: Wow. Um, and for those listening, there's a there's an eighteen minute video of this, and it is one of it's i'll I'll link to it, but it is one of my i don't know it's it's absolutely riveting just watching you negotiate with these people
0: yeah and the, and the the funny thing about it is you know, it was like probably at one in the morning or something yeah. I don't, I'm not sure what time it was, but it was um these poor, weary secret service officers who had actually you know done yeoman's work protecting us from. I, I think what would have been a violent episode, but for their presence, mm. and um, and all they wanted to do was to go home. And I think I put them in a in a difficult position. Uh, you know, they they don't like dealing with the Russians. The Russians are not are are pretty abusive toward our law enforcement in a, in a lot of ways, and they, uh, you know. They ended up in a, in a weird negotiating mediator position in that situation that makes for super fun video <laughs> but probably wasn't fun for the individuals yeah. <laughs> in question. They were very good humored about it. But I, I, t- I take this opportunity to apologize for putting them in that position. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me Their first privacy report, I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from DeleteMe. And it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got... My latest report, and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore, and that is why I recommend Delete Me, as this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress as I do every time that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it make sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft doxing and phishing scams. Delete.me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com/lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com/lawfare20 code Lawfare 20.
1: I got to say they have pretty good spirits about it though. I, I like the one who said to you, don't you want a beer? I know I want a
2: beer. Yeah, I, no, the,
0: the, I mean look, we're all repeat <laughs> players yeah. in this game and I I, I know them reasonably well. Mm-hmm. And I've actually worked with them on a couple of matters that, that were uh, – you know, that to, – to to diffuse situations that could be um, – uh, could have been difficult, and so I, I, I do think there's a level of mutual, mm-hmm. you know, trust or or whatever. But at the end of the day, yeah, they were tired, and uh, <laughs>
1: they, they're people. Yeah. <laughs> also, in the video, one of my favorite things is um, who I did. You film it, or was it someone else who was filming?
0: Um, I think that one, I was. I think I was sitting there holding up a camera. I, uh-huh. I, it was freaking four in the yeah, like <laughs> late at night. It's all a blur. It's all a blur.
1: <laughs> there's this amazing—you so can, you can see people from—you can see embassy staff coming out through the gates, and there's this right. amazing, uh, I guess, the office-style Zoom um, when you can see, you know, a woman comes down and talks to this agents, and then they come across the street, and it's just—yeah.
0: Yeah, so it's a really interesting— problem for the Russians. So on the one hand, think of it from the point of view of a normal embassy or government, right? If this happened at a, I don't know, the Swedish embassy, Mm -hmm. right? They would just ignore it, Mm -hmm. right? Because all of the – everything we're talking about is about their reactions to these. It's not about – we haven't talked about the text of what I've projected, right? It's we're talking about we're talking about it because they react. The only reason we did this a second time. We did we did it the first time. Mm-hmm. And the only reason there was a second time was that we got this incredible cat and mouse video that's been seen, you know, 10 million times around the world because they chased our stupid spotlight around yeah. the building. <laughs> and somebody Uh, uh, set it to music. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, It was on the news
0: too. Yeah, no, no, it was a a big deal. But it wasn't a big deal because we put a Ukrainian flag on the building. It was a big deal because they were stupid enough to chase it around the building. Mm -hmm. So you'd think that after a year of doing this over and over again, they would learn just ignore it. But here's the problem. They don't operate in an ecosystem in which Public relations is what's important. They operate in a highly vertical system of accountability in which if you don't do something, somebody in Moscow says, why didn't you do something about this? Right. Mm -hmm. And no one's going to say because we didn't want to attract attention to it. Um, There's a it's a there's a kind of. It's like vertically integrated machismo. Everybody is looking up the ladder and afraid that their response won't be chest thumping and, you know, Mm. muscle rippling enough for the person above them on the totem pole. And the result is that even if you're the person who's like, why shouldn't we just ignore it? You can't suggest that to the person above you on the totem pole. And right. so the whole system is rigged in the direction of kind of toxic masculine response. Mm-hmm. And that's why they're super consistent about it. And so, you know, it's not just that they always respond. They put on tactical gear to respond. They put on masks. They get all dressed up. They they showed up once with with bulletproof vests and, oh and fire extinguishers to respond to a light um, because they need, they need to be able to show their, the people to whom they're answerable to that they did everything that they could to stop this. And the result is that they make all kinds of stupid mistakes – Like, for example, sending a thug across the street with umbrellas, knowing we're live streaming it, Mm -hmm. right? And to everybody in the world except the one or two people who matter, which is the people above them on the totem pole, that response looks goofy. Mm -hmm. Um, But to the people above them on the totem pole, that's what's required to show them that you're, you know, flexing your muscle in the face of Ukrainians.
1: So— Let's say they listen to this and they stop. Would you stop?
0: I would not stop entirely because there are still going to be... There are still going to be Ukrainian community protests that I will want to show support for.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And uh, there are a group of people who... I think this makes feel good. And... Some of them are here, some of them like literally on the scene. Mm-hmm. People like it when the projector shows up. And I <laughs> and I actually think, you know, showing people in real time, in real space that you care about what they're going through matters and that doesn't depend on the Russian response. Uh, there are also people in Europe and in the conflict zone who enjoy – the um, who enjoy the the social media of it, and so I, at this point, it has an audience that I don't want to let down.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, if they did not respond, I would find, in addition to some of this, something else to do that they would respond to because i think the highest purpose of these operations is to annoy them mm-hmm. and if i'm not annoying them if i'm not annoying them to the point that they can't just wave it off i'm not doing it well enough and i i want to find the i want to find the the thing that In a very like teenage boy kind of way, you know, like the teenage boy who who's I don't want to make this overly gendered, but who like the thing that he really can't stand is if the person he's bothering doesn't mind. Mm -hmm. Right. That's how I feel if yeah. they don't
1: mind. I think anybody with siblings
2: gets <laughs> God, that. Yeah. He, like I'm
0: I'm really not more than a 13-year-old yeah. in, that, in that respect.
2: It's um, <laughs>
1: wild. Um, I wanted to go this is just a question I had because uh just personally, why is the Secret Service there? Are they I I know they have other jobs aside from protecting the president, but are are they there to protect the embassy?
0: Yeah. So the Secret Service has basically three missions. Uh, the first and most famous is the presidential protective mission. Um, they also protect foreign embassies and foreign uh, visiting dignitaries. Um, and I think that grew out of the fact that they had this very specialized expertise in 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 protection. Some of that embassy diplomatic protection is done by the Diplomatic Security Service, which is part of the State Department. Uh-huh. But the Secret Service has the lion's share of the embassy protection function, particularly for embassies that have significant threats associated with them, which the Russian embassy certainly does. Uh, so they have the lion's share of that. And then they also have, in a separate function, they have a bunch of jurisdiction over financial crimes of one sort or another
2: mm-hmm.
0: particularly crimes involving uh, uh, forgery and uh, and uh, minting fake currency um, so they're they're a weird agency mm-hmm. um, but I very much prefer to deal with them than all the other agencies they they' they're, they're, uh, they're a, a more professional law enforcement agency, in my experience, than than, uh, than the DIPSEC people. Mm-hmm. Um, and in situations in which we've dealt with other law enforcement agencies in these protests, that introduces a real wild card. So um, the one time we tried to do something in New York at the UN mission, Mm -hmm. this was not me, but a Confederate who lives in New York. The NYPD was quite abusive to him and to an 11-year-old son of his. Um, That just never would have happened with the Secret Service. Mm -hmm. Uh, When when we did the operation in Ottawa, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police were were lovely. uh, And... It was a pleasure dealing with them, and they had no idea what to do.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it was
0: they were perfectly lovely and Canadian about it, but it was, um, but they didn't have any sense of like, well, what could you and couldn't you do with a light and an embassy, mm. right? Whereas the Secret Service, they've thought about these things enough, and they've had enough interactions that they actually like. They have a very thoughtful set of requests when we do these. Uh, they like me to stay on the other side of Wisconsin Avenue, for example, which I don't think they're legally allowed to enforce, but they request it and I always honor the request. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they make a point of making sure that we keep the, the lights above a certain level so it doesn't blind drivers. Uh, You know, they're just – they're very good and serious about what they're doing in a way that just helps everything. Um, The RCMP had clearly never dealt with a situation like this before and there's a very funny video of me and the RCMP (laughs) guy kind of like – he's like – gosh, I, I don't know if it's legal. It, it, yeah. I, I'm not telling you it's not, but I, I don't really know. Um, <laughs> we had a very funny exchange about it. Um, uh, and then the French National Police were awful. Um, mm, yeah, and, what happened there? Well, so first of all, I don't quite know because I don't speak French
2: well. <laughs>
0: um, I, I was with a... um. Uh. Uh, Ukrainian who spoke fluent French and who did the whole negotiation, they were – apparently it is not even plausibly legal in Mm -hmm. Paris to shine lights on an embassy against its will. Uh, The – they stopped us. They detained us and they – we kind of talked our way out of it uh, and – you know, over about half an hour of discussions, uh, we kind of won them over, um, but it took a bit of doing and there was – I'm quite confident if I had been there alone, I would have been arrested and uh, I'm equally confident that um, that the fact that I was – with an attractive young woman who one of the cops uh, was clearly interested in, uh, probably (laughs) helped our cause. Feminism. (laughs) Yes.
1: Um, So is there any international law that governs whether or not this is legal? I know you're working on something. Yeah.
0: So the international law of embassy protection is the Vienna Convention of 1963. And it— believe it or not, does not say anything about lights. Um, It says that the premises of the embassy shall be inviolate. And the person of the ambassador, it enshrines the concept of diplomatic immunity. And it obliges the host country to protect the embassy. So the question is protect it from what, right? Mm. clearly – if you take a rocket launcher or a machine gun, <laughs> right, they they, they, go. <laughs> they got to protect it from that. Yeah. And there have been um, a lot of efforts over the years in different countries to make life super unpleasant for people in embassies, um, including, by the way, a lot of this has been directed at U.S. embassies. And so the U.S. has a fairly developed view of this. Mm. So – One case that I know of is the case of of the U.S. Embassy Baghdad um, where, you know, protesters, people associated with the Shia uh, militia in particular would blare sound at the embassies or would burn tires for weeks at a time to try to create a very unpleasant and, you know, frankly toxic environment. And the U.S. position with which I agree – is that that actually makes it impossible to use the embassy, and so the it interferes with the embassy's day to day operations, and so the host government is obliged to put a stop to that, and so we were con- we were uh, uh, concerned to not do anything that complicates the U.S. position in situations like that because the last thing I want is to make U.S. embassy personnel abroad less able to do their jobs. And so we have not used persistent sound, though we have used occasional sound Mm -hmm. to support the specific protests. We've never used smell. Um, And I – so that's a, you know, a thing that you can do, right? You Mm -hmm. can release things that smell really bad Um, and – Uh, The third is we've never used things like smoke or Mm -hmm. things that could be toxic or – and there are a few reasons for that. One is that I actually think it's in conflict with the US obligations under the convention and I don't want to put my own government in a difficult position. But the second factor that to me is more important than that is the neighbor's. Uh, One of the biggest sources of support that we've had in these situations is the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. They – you know, I used to have to bring a generator to these protests. I don't anymore. I just knock on one of the doors and plug into their houses now. I – they bring us water. And beer and stuff. So <laughs> actually, when the guy asked me, "Don't you want a beer?" I I got a beer <laughs> a few minutes later. One, actually, I'm yeah. um, uh, but um, the other, I don't want to do anything that makes it less pleasant to live in that neighborhood. And you know, anything that you do, lights are very focused. They go in one direction. They don't spill out in other directions. Uh, you know, you release something that smells bad, or burn a tire, or something, and that's as unpleasant to be the person next door to the building than it is to be in the building. Um, so, I I think a whole lot of rules like be a mensch, be decent actually work legally very well and they work in terms of neighborly relations very well. And when when Umbrella Man came across the street, the thing that finally defeated him was that one of the neighbors brought out a giant ladder and we just climbed up the ladder with the spotlight and he couldn't compete with that anymore. So that's when he went back wow. across the street. And that was a creature of our relationship with the neighborhood that just couldn't survive a more aggressive approach to uh, things like sound. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's hard enough to live next to that embassy, but then you have some assholes show up and blare stuff in the middle of the night. But if we show up in the middle of the night like 4 in the morning and sidewalk chalk Mm -hmm. the entire Wisconsin Avenue – that doesn't make a sound. It doesn't bother anybody. But if we blared the Ukrainian national anthem at four in the morning, that would might bother. It might
1: wake them up. It might
0: wake them up. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, what about – so we mentioned the giant line, Wisconsin Avenue. Are there traffic laws that prohibit any light? Because I noticed in some videos, um, you know, you'll be projecting that a bus will come and then there's a
0: flag. Yeah. Um, so we – there. Th- there are probably no laws that I, that affect that. We are we try to be very careful about not blinding drivers, mm-hmm. uh, just for human safety reasons. the 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 lights in question are extraordinarily bright, um, blindingly bright, bright,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and um, and so when a bus comes. I'm always happy for it to shine on the side of the bus, but I don't want it to shine in the windows of the bus. Mm-hmm. I don't want... Uh, and the laser in particular, if it shines in somebody's eyes, can be quite dangerous. So we we try to be careful about putting our hands, or bodies in front of things uh, as necessary in order to protect people's faces and the like. Wow. Um,
1: and I think one special military operation that we didn't touch upon involved a washing machine?
0: Yeah, that was the one that really spun out of control. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the, so the washing machine, I want to say, is not, was not my operation.
1: Okay.
0: I showed up, uh, so I had, uh, this was a, the project of a woman named Alyam, uh, Alyam Kent, who is a resident of Kiev. Mm-hmm. And, uh, she is a, a Crimean Tatar, half Ukra- uh, Crimean Tatar, half uh, American,
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, and so she was home visiting family in the Washington area, and she is an artist, a kind of visual artist, and of, of various sorts. And she had decided that she was going to. Uh, make a washing machine, a paper mache washing machine, and deliver it to the Russian embassy. Um, And she got in touch with me because she had seen the special military operations and she wanted some advice about how to do it in a way that was going to cause the least friction with the Secret Service. And she was being a responsible person. So uh, (laughs) I had never met her. Mm -hmm. um, And She wanted to deliver it on – I believe it's January 7th is Orthodox Christmas Mm. and she was – the idea was that Russian soldiers kept stealing washing machines and other appliances that they found in Ukraine and so she was going to deliver one. Uh, So that they didn't have to steal them to the embassy and I thought it was witty and uh, good-natured and it had all the right kinds of mischief attached to it. Oh, and the the other thing that was cool about it was that the washing machine, which was beautiful by the way, it was a really well-done paper mache washing machine. The washing machine had a, a QR code on it so that somebody walking down the street would say, hey, what's this washing machine doing? And snap the QR code and get a good account of, you know, Russian uh, uh, theft of property and the like in, in uh, and war crimes in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And so I – we had a – A a brief exchange and she told me she was going to show that there and I said, this is crazy. Uh, Let me film it and then I'll release a video. The video will get much more attention than the washing machine will on its own. And so I showed up there with a camera (laughs) and met this uh, lovely uh, uh, young artist with her washing machine. Mm
2: -hmm. And
0: we did a little interview and then she carries the washing machine across the street and puts it there and we film it and we film her talking to some people about it because it it immediately had the effect that she intended. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then I figured, so here was my my dastardly little scheme. As (laughs) soon as she left... I knew because they would come out and destroyed the sunflowers Uh that they would come out and destroy the washing machine. Um, And so I figured all that needed to happen was she would leave and I would kind of go across the street (laughs) and um, they would come out and destroy it. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: So (laughs) she, she left and I went across the street. And the Russians threw me a curveball. They did not come out and destroy it. They called it into the Secret Service as a bomb threat.
1: (laughs) Ah. (laughs) A little different. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So the Secret Service um, uh, seals off the neighborhood and starts – yeah, they took it quite seriously. And they would not listen to my protestations that, no, it's not a – bomb it's a paper mache washing machine because they had one question for me under those circumstances which is did you bring it here and the answer to that is no i didn't bring it here <laughs> i i i know who did but they thought i was kind of cover cuz i wouldn't say who she was cuz mm-hmm. i didn't actually want them sending police cars to her house and arresting her mm-hmm. so It took me a while to get her on the phone and tell her you need to come back and (laughs) clear this up with the Secret Service. In the meantime, they'd sent the bomb squad in to defuse the paper mache washing machine. Anyway, Liam shows up and uh, uh, they have a protracted conversation uh, and by the end of which they (laughs) – Uh, The Secret Service was telling her that she should use the pictures of the washing machine for her art uh, graduate school portfolio. And it all worked (laughs) out very well. And uh, I think the video of it is uh, lovely, Um, uh, also available uh, on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, no, that's a good example of how I think the special military operations have kind of – Created a, a, a space for people who are who want to be creative about you know figuring out how to express themselves to the Russian embassy to do so and to think about it in sort of grand terms um, and so a bunch of people who want to do that sort of thing have gotten in touch with me about kind of how to do it in ways that are preferably not going to require the bomb squad and, mm. and are going to you know, maximize visibility and impact.
1: So do you have any plans for the future?
0: Well, I am working on a crazy scheme, which I am not sure I can get done, but I'm working <laughs> on it to rent an apartment in one of the adjacent buildings <laughs> to the embassy so that the spotlights have a per- a permanent home and um,
1: it's not a cheap neighborhood. It's either.
0: not a cheap neighborhood. <laughs> it's it's, it's going to cost, I don't know, $1,700 a month or oh, something. Yeah. But I want to use the apartment to house refugees oh. and spotlights. That's the goal. <laughs> and uh, whether I can do that in a fashion that I can possibly afford financially uh, and that the terms of the relevant lease Will allow remains to be seen, but I am working on it. And those who want to follow and help with this project uh, should should follow the Dog Shirt Daily um, uh, Substack, where I document all the special military operations, and uh, which is at dogshirtdaily.com. And right now, if you subscribe, if you become a paid subscriber to Dog Shirt Daily. All of the proceeds from that are going to fund uh, the acquisition of this apartment.
1: And if there are any Ukrainian landlords paying attention or listening, please reach out. (laughs) Um, So to kind of turn this back to you, um, you know, walking through your life and career, you started working for the Legal Times and then was at the Washington Post as a legal editorial writer. Picture yourself as early career Ben and – Russia invades Ukraine back then. Do you think you would have done something like this?
0: No. Um, It's an interesting question. So, you know, while I was a working reporter, I wouldn't have been allowed to. Mm. And while I was an editorial writer at The Post, you know, there were all kinds of restrictions on our political activity and I could have written editorials or whatever, but, you know, always in the arch tone of uh, and the, the first person plural, you know, yeah. we think that this you, war crimes should stop. So I was never in a position to do this sort of thing. I was also uh, frankly allergic to activism. I, yeah. I have always thought of myself as the least activist person around. Um, And a bunch of things over the last few years have changed that, one of which is frankly being in a position between my role at Brookings, which essentially my job is to be me,
2: Mm
0: -hmm. um, and my role at Lawfare, where I kind of get to set the rules and – Lawfare has rules in people's interactions with lawfare, but it doesn't try to regulate the rest of their lives. And so, you know, we have people who work for lawfare and in one case, you know, and drift in and out of government, right? We have people who write for lawfare and are involved in cases that we cover, right? So this is an environment in which we're We try to be upfront about our conflicts of interest. But at the end of the day, we're not lawfare people and only lawfare people. And I think that rule applies to me as much as it applies to everyone else. And this is really the first role I've ever had where that was kind of true. And so I've been able over the last few years to be much freer about all kinds of outside activities that I would previously have not been willing to allow myself to contemplate.
1: Um, And this is kind of going back a bit, but I know what prompted, obviously what prompted the special military operations was the invasion. But what was the genesis of it? How did you decide, yes, I'm going to take lights? This is what I'm what sparked that idea? Yeah.
0: So, in a in a strange way, it's an homage to a gentleman named Robin Bell, who um, who er, during the Trump administration, Robin is a is a whom I've never met, although we've spoken on the phone once. Um, he during the early part of the Trump administration projected the emoluments clause of the Constitution onto the Trump Hotel. And I thought that was pretty brilliant.
2: Hmm.
0: Uh, he followed it up with some other, uh, I, I would say, left left politics, anti-Trump kind of projections, um, all against buildings that were – they were mostly against the Trump Hotel. Uh, I thought it was a very clever form of local protest. Uh, It provoked a lot of discussion uh, and I liked it and it stuck in my mind. And uh, a few days after the invasion – and I'd have to go back to my Twitter feed, which is now no longer there in order to date this precisely. So – but it was a few days after the election. I drove by the embassy for – Again, just because it's in my neighborhood, and it, I know, you know, I noticed for the first time that it was a giant white-faced building that looked like a movie screen. Hmm. And
1: asking, it's almost asking. It was to me. almost asking. So I
0: tweeted um, that. You know, it's like a movie screen. It's begging for somebody to project the Ukrainian flag on it. <laughs> and like lots and lots. And I was thinking of Robin Bell and I may have even said paging, you know, yeah. Robin Bell or something. And I, I noticed that a very large number of people commented on this, retweeted it, thought it was a great idea. But, you know, the weeks went by and nobody did it. And then my friend Mateo who is a college kid somewhere in one of those elite northeastern colleges with whom I, I – know Mateo from, uh, from the In Lieu of Fun audience. He's a thoughtful guy who shows up on the show and asks good questions and he texted me, I think I know how to do the, this and he sent me my, my tweet. And so Mateo and I started texting back and forth about how to do it and before I knew it, he had scored to lend him uh, 16 giant spotlights from a local company um, uh, that does lighting and they would lent him the equipment. And I managed to get somebody at the top of – who lives in one of these buildings to let us use her roof. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, Mateo and his friend Avery, who is now Lawfare's intern, mm-hmm. um, were – we were all of a sudden driving a van full of, you know, big spotlights around. Uh, and so we did the first one. Just because nobody else had done it or mm-hmm. nobody else had responded, it turns out actually somebody had done it. They oh. just their social media presence was so minimal that nobody had noticed. Oh. Um, and um, so we we did the first one, and um, the reaction from the Russians, which was to try to, you know, chase the spotlight around, and that produced that cat and mouse video. Uh, was so delightful that we just kept doing it. And we've ever since then been, you know, shrinking the equipment, trying to make it more and more mobile. We now – I now can do it, you know, in the trunk of my car with much better accuracy and I can write (laughs) words. So it's like, you know, there's a Moore's law. It gets smaller and smaller (laughs) um, and more and more powerful. And – But really the animating spirit was I have to live with this thing in my neighborhood and I hate it. And, Mm -hmm. like, how can I make life unpleasant for the people in there who are representing this government? And that's – it's not actually more complicated than that. Wow. Yeah.
1: And so kind of pulling back a bit, you – if somebody doesn't know you – and only knows you by your titles, senior fellow at Brookings.
2: Yeah, I seem all respectable and shit. Oh,
1: yeah, you seem very respectable and shit. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, And in your free time, you're also the guy running around with the projector conducting these special military operations. If you were a cub reporter at the Legal Times or anywhere else, how would you cover this story?
0: I think you have a choice, In this situation, it's very, very hard to think about with respect to oneself, um, which is why people generally shouldn't be assignment editors (laughs) of stories about themselves. Um, You can cover the event. Protesters shine lights on embassy, which is what the Washington Post did at the time we did the first operation. Or you can cover me and... I try not to let people do the latter. I'm not going to not answer people's questions. I'm not going to hide what I'm doing. But I do try to, first of all, always keep the subject on what we're projecting Mm -hmm. and what the significance of the images is. Um, When we can work with... Local organizations to support what they're doing. I I do prefer to do it that way. Um, I think you know what the local Ukrainian community has to say is much more important than me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have not. I've tried to not seek press attention for the operations as opposed to the messages. Um, When we have done things that I've tried to draw attention to, it's usually – it's somebody else's voice. It's, you know, Luda Huntsman Mm -hmm. reading an essay uh, by Katya Savchenko, right? We're the facilitator of that. Avery and I are getting the images up there. We're arranging – the lighting so that it works. We're filming it. And I bring a certain degree of personality to it that uh, you know people follow the special military operations because it's this thing that I do. Um, but the last thing I want is for it to be about me. And whenever it is... You always have to ask, wait a minute, how much of this is ego and how much of this is actually being helpful? Um, and there's a there's a complicated mix there because at some level, the goal here is to, you know, create and sustain attention to this issue. And personality and charisma do drive attention.
2: Mm-hmm. But, um,
0: <laughs> you know, there's also the other side that if people are thinking about me instead of thinking about Ukraine, that's not a win. Um, And I want them to be thinking about that building Mm -hmm. and I want them to be thinking about the message that we're putting on that building. I want them to be thinking about the people who are being injured, killed, Mm -hmm. displaced, and I want them to be thinking about the people whose voices they're not hearing, and so it's a it's a it's a delicate little dance. Because honestly, if the the cub reporter comes to me and says, you know, hey, I want to do a story about special military operations, that's great, but I don't want that cub reporter to spend that time drawing attention to me Mm
2: -hmm. i want
0: you know the person who is least often on those live streams is me
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Um, the the camera i'm
2: holding the camera but it's
0: usually pointed away from me yeah um and um it's often my voice on it um but the goal is to make people think about something else um Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's a complicated relationship and it's one that I've, you know, continued to struggle with and that there's—I don't think there's an optimal answer to.
1: You're the hook and the story is the platform of raising Ukrainian voices.
0: Yeah, exactly. And and look, if we're not, um, you know— Another example of this, something we did do on Lawfare, was live from Ukraine um, where, yeah, I'm the catalyst for it. I'm the host, right? But every single one of those episodes is featuring a Ukrainian voice on the conflict. Mm -hmm. And so do a lot of people listen to it because they're interested in me? Yes. If all they get is me— then I'm not doing my job.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Ben Wittes, for this lovely conversation.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: I am, yeah, I, I definitely learned a lot, um, and I can't wait to go to a special military operation.
0: We should do one this week in your honor.
1: I would absolutely love that. Immediately, yes. Um, so for our chatter listeners, it's tradition that the guest answers a question from the chatter chatterbox. Um, so Ben... What advice would you give to your 20-year-old self?
0: Start wearing dog shirts earlier. I love it. (laughs) You know, I went through this whole phase where I started, you know, feeling like I had to dress respectably. (laughs) And uh, it was a bad idea. It was 25 years of bad idea. Uh uh, then it was only during the pandemic and during In Lieu of Fun that I was just like, it's all dog shirts all the way down. And I think I would have been happier through my 30s and 40s if I had uh, just never, never done the suit thing.
1: <laughs> I've only ever known you as, as dog shirt, Ben. Um, how many dog shirts do you have?
0: Probably about 30.
1: I think we should get Team One's Lawfare ones.
0: You know, I have the dog shirt program at Brookings, which is I will <laughs> I buy a dog shirt for any staff at Brookings who promises to wear them to work. Um, Absolutely. And, um, so far, I have, I think four, um, yeah. dog shirt wearing <laughs> okay. people at Brookings, and so we're working on it. The dog shirt revolution is coming. It's just a question of whether it's going to run over you or whether you're going to be part of the the wave that crashes over. Everyone. The
1: unstoppable force of exactly. doctors. <laughs> All right. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining me. A pleasure. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.